Thank you for joining us here on the Nerds from the Crypt, the podcast that reviews your favorite horror movies, series, books, and comics. We also interview indie creators about their upcoming projects, and I'm your host, Saul. This is Greg. And we have a great episode for you today. We are uh, welcoming... Eric Christopher Myers into the crypt to talk to us about uh, a movie that he not only wrote, but also directed called Butterfly Kisses. How are you doing today, Eric? I am doing well. How are you guys? I'm doing great. I'm anxious to start talking about this movie. Awesome. Well, thanks for yeah. having me on. I appreciate it. it, what, it what time is it for you guys right now, by the way? Well, for me, it's eight. It's eight? For, for me, it's six. Yeah. Greg, is, yeah, Greg is a little bit, a little bit earlier. <laughs> Oh man, so it's nine for me. So that's crazy. Then you know what? I'm 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 not going to complain. <laughs> We've um, I think the the earliest that someone's been on the show because just because of the time time uh, difference was I think at at one point four in the morning. Or yeah, but yeah, was, it might have been might have been earlier or even I guess later, depending on the how do you decide? But just dep- uh, depending on the where they're from. Well, I think here's the important question. Is this the beginning of the day for you guys, or is this the end of the day for you guys? Um, for me, it's the beginning. For me, it's somewhere in the middle because like, I, I don't think my day ever ended last night or yesterday. So I've been I've, still drinking wine from last night. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, then, then that means time. you had an awesome day. Uh, yeah, started at three o'clock in the morning yesterday and just kept rolling. So yeah, here we go. <laughs> and I am now here to put you to sleep. So let's do it. <laughs> Eric, I like to ask this question to pretty much anybody that comes into the into the crypt to to talk to us. Uh, what is your your history growing up with horror, or what what you know what got you to where you're writing and directing movies? Uh, long circuitous path, but the probably easiest way to put it is that I was terrified as a child by horror films. Um, not all horror films, but, but specifically I saw the exorcist. I saw an American werewolf in London and the original nightmare on Elm street and saw them at a very young age, um, traumatized me and made me fall madly in love with the genre. And it was, a thing where I was constantly chasing that, that, that emotional state. I wanted to be terrified. And um, as I grew older and I started writing my own stories, um, I wanted to learn how to sort of harness that power myself. And I thought, wouldn't it be cool if I could scare other people? So that, that's, that's the short version of a very long story. <laughs> Do you like Batman? Yes. You got scared of yes. a young age and decided to take it on. Yes, father, I shall become a bat. <laughs> exactly. He, oh my gosh. It's him. <laughs> Don't tell anyone. Don't oh, tell okay. anyone. Okay. I'll make sure to put a, a, a bam, uh, noise uh, in the middle. <laughs> I think that uh, I think that any artist that is, you know, really um smitten by something 
it's, they have a desire to recreate that experience for other people. You know, I, I'm so excited because of the first time I, you know, I, I saw this and therefore I'd love for somebody to be able to, you know, have that same emotion when they watched or read something that I did. And it's that constant desire to, to share and to mm-hmm. be able to, you know, continue to to replicate those emotional states. So that at least that's the case for me. Yeah, well, I think for me, it's like getting other people to watch a movie that they haven't seen and just sitting there looking at them, waiting, hoping that they have the same reaction as you do. That's fun. That is so exciting. <laughs> I, I love sitting down and doing specifically horror franchises with mm-hmm. people who've never watched them before and just letting the whole thing play out. Because, I mean, we, we all know that horror franchises are the ones that tend to go the most off the rails and <laughs> go into some really, really weird areas. And Very so much like this podcast. Yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> weird, guys. Let's 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 see where the sequel goes. Yes. <laughs> so. Butterfly kisses, all right. Um, this is this is from what I understand. This is not your first film. Is that correct? That is correct. It's my second feature. Okay. So, what was your first film that you did? Uh, it was a movie called Roulette. It came out in 2013, and uh, it's it's actually streaming on Prime for free right now. Um, but it was sort of my my ultra low budget. Just got out of film school. Um, you know, volunteer effort that I did with a bunch of recent grads and other film students. And, you know, it was designed to be a calling card and it got us into mm-hmm. festivals and it, it got us meetings. And then nice. here I am now. So it's streaming. So people listening, go watch that too. And then yeah. compare. <laughs> yeah, they're very, they're very, very different. It's more of like a, like a European Lars von Trier art house sort of movie with some, you know, nasty, disgusting stuff at the end of the film. But, you know, and Butterfly Kisses is very, very different. They're, they're night and day from one another. It's a, it's always interesting to go ahead and, and go back and see that very first film or the very first project that, that someone that you, that you've, or, you know, kind of, kind of see the progression from one film to the other. And, on this, at least on this podcast, we've had a couple that do have that first that first project, and they 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 kind of try to hide it because they don't they're not too fond of it. But then others that really like um, it's somewhere out there. You can find it if you find it. You're great, awesome. Other ones are like, oh no, don't don't look for that one. Don't look for it. <laughs> no, I I don't feel you know. I, we should never be embarrassed by our work because our work is always uh, representative of where we were at that time, and, and it's it's not only. <laughs> you know, a product of the artist and and what his or her, you know, mindset was or creative level was. But it's also with film, it's a question of how much money were you able to pull out from between the the sofa cushions? You know, what 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 sort of resources did you have in order to make a film? And they're expensive and they're laborious processes. Um, you know, it's it's interesting for me because when roulette came out, I really, you know, had to hit the pavement and try to get interviews and get film festivals and line things up and make a name for myself. And, you know, I'm, I'm by no means, you know, you know, some, some celebrity now, but the film Butterfly Kisses did play in higher profile film festivals. It had a bigger release and uh, more people are finding it due to uh, platforms like Amazon Prime and whatnot. And so it's it's interesting when 
people are finding that sort of as my first movie for them. And then they're going backwards and looking at the previous one and expecting mm -hmm. something that's similar and getting something that's totally different, whether that, whether that's considered a good thing or that's off putting it's, it's, it's cool for me. I'm like, yeah, check out the last one, you know, see, see either a completely different voice that I had or, you know, see how much I hope I've come as a filmmaker since then. So let's ask, talk about uh, butterfly kisses. Where did the idea, the premise, um, come from? Because it is, it is, it's a. I would say it's it's like found footage, but there's a little twist to it. So where did this idea come from? I, I'm I'm a huge horror nerd, as we've discussed, which is why I'm on this show because we're all nerds. And um, <laughs> I've also done, I've done a lot of uh, academic and critical writing on the horror genre. In fact, I'm writing for Ain't It Cool News now, and. I, I'm constantly, you know, picking genre apart and thinking about the the nuts and bolts of storytelling and conventions and whatnot. And I, I, I think I had been watching either TV or I had gone to uh, another film, and this was the end of 2014 thereabouts. And it, I saw a preview for a found footage movie. It might have been The Last Exorcism 2 or one of the, the paranormal activity films. But I, I was out for a walk uh, the next day and I was just, you know, turning the concept over in my head and, and thinking back to that window in time in 1999 when The Blair Witch Project came out and mm -hmm. how for that summer there was the mistaken belief you know it, it was it was definitely a guided mistaken belief by by artisan when it came out but there was there was the erroneous belief that the film was real uh at least on the part of general audiences and i i thought about that and i was like you know nothing like that could ever happen again it it, it could never ever happen again even if somebody found real you know, boxes of tapes or film canisters and mm -hmm. thought that they had really discovered footage that showed the death or disappearance of the filmmakers in some sort of, you know, alleged supernatural incident. People would think it was fake. People would think that, um, you know, oh, you're just trying to do the Blair Witch Project thing again, or it's somebody's unfinished horror film from 10 years ago. And that got the wheels turning. And I thought, well, these found footage movies never tell us the story of who found the footage. So mm -hmm. wouldn't it be interesting to do a fake documentary about the person who finds the footage and wrap that fake documentary around their, you know, found footage and butterfly kisses then that that's where that came from. And I wrote the script in like seven or eight days. It was really quick. It has very yes idea. Yeah, it's very interesting premise because uh, when you sent me the, the the link or where to find it because I actually have Amazon Prime, so I was able to able to see that there. Uh, I automatically sent it to to Greg and saying like, hey, are you gonna you know watch this um, as a very interesting premise? And I I'm not, I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but you need to watch it. I, I enjoyed it all the way through. I I think I sent it to him while I was not even like thirty minutes in. And as soon as I kind of see saw where it was going, I'm like, oh okay <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Let, let's, watch let's, this. Let's go ahead and do this. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead and watch this. Um, That's awesome. Very, very interesting premise. Let's talk about, I guess, supernatural portion. I guess of the of the film. Sure. Um, yeah. Where, where did the Where did the legend come from? How did you figure that out? 
So I live here in Baltimore, Maryland, and you know, of course, this is this is Blair Witch Country, mm-hmm. and um, so you know, it's it's the perfect sort of ground zero for for doing a movie of this sort. And right outside of the metro area, there is this uh, town called Ellicott City, and Ellicott City is. Um, a historic district that is, you know, incredibly picturesque and it's got towering cliffs and church spires and whatnot. And uh, it's it's all settled along uh, a, a river. And Ellicott City has this long, long, very rich history of alleged supernatural activity. Yeah. And it's the sort of town where every storefront and every tavern, every place has a ghost story or three. And so (laughs) there are walking tours every weekend and there've been numerous books written on all of the ghosts in Ellicott city. Uh, I mean, you can't turn a corner without bumping into one, or at least that's how the stories go. So um, being a teenager who grew up in that area and, and marinating in the culture and being a horror movie fanatic also at the same time, um, there was one location that I was specifically drawn to, uh, and it's right outside of town, and it is a train tunnel called Ilchester Tunnel. And Ilchester Tunnel is, um, for anyone who's not seen the movie, uh, it's part of the old main line, of, you know, the, the B&O railroad line, and it is a, uh, a tunnel that has been drilled into a sheer rock face, and it is uh, accessible only by a trestle that spans a river below. So it's this very eerie, very cinematic sort of location. And all the kids in town and outside of town know Ilchester Tunnel as this, you know, with finger quotes, haunted spot. But what differentiates it from the, the rest of the historic district is that while kids do go up there at midnight and scare themselves and they hear things and see things and tell stories on the schoolyard or whatever, uh, there is no specific ghost story of, oh, this is where the Confederate soldier who hanged himself. There's, there's no backstory. It's just a place where weird stuff happens. Mm-hmm. So given that Butterfly Kisses is this, you know, meta fake documentary with real people in it playing themselves, I thought it would be cool to take a place that really does have a reputation, but then, you know, give it, give it a fake backstory, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, to again, blend fact and fantasy. And that's, that's really where it came from. So let's talk about some, some cameos that you had on here. Um, You had Matt Lake appearing as himself in this, in this movie. Yeah. Um, Matt Lake is kind of a he's kind of a, a, a our, our premier folklorist out here in the Maryland area. And it, it's not restricted to the Maryland area. He he's he's known to us here for the weird Maryland book that he wrote um, that, you know, was lining all the shelves at Barnes and Noble there for, you know, years and years and years. But he's also done uh, in the same series books about. Um, New Jersey and Pennsylvania, and uh, he's he's also got his own brand now, and is writing all sorts of of books that continue to be on the subject of folklore and supernatural and whatnot. But he's considered sort of you know in our area and uh, the Eastern Seaboard here, just you know he's the guy. He is the go to guy, <laughs> and guy. he's the guy. I you know I've I'm sitting here right next to um, 
a bookshelf that is just filled with books about the Loch Ness Monster and Bigfoot. I'm really into cryptozoology and I'm really into urban legends. Uh, I'm a skeptic, though, so I'm coming at it from the perspective of, uh, you know, are these stories real? But more importantly, how do they become social constructs? Um, you know, through a sort of fusion of, um, you know, truth and bullshit. Yeah. And, you know, so I'm really, really into this stuff. And that that was a huge influence on the premise of Butterfly Kisses. But it was also a great excuse to finally be able to reach out to this author uh, who I'd been a fan of for, you know, 10 years or whatever. And just to be able to be like, hey, um, I've got this idea that I wanted to pitch to you for this movie that I'd love you to appear in as yourself. And it's mm -hmm. also an excuse just to sit at the bar and drink a couple of pints and talk about monsters. Right? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. It was awesome. And it was, it was uh, pretty receptive right off the bat? Or did you have to like, like, who's this guy calling me? Or... I, I, thought, him. <laughs> I, I thought he was going to be like, oh, man, this is, you know, th this is this is, you know, kind of undermining uh, the notion of what I'm trying to write about. I'm trying to write about real fake lore or, or real folklore, <laughs> not fake. lore. And, and you're making fake lore. <laughs> exactly. And but no, I mean, you know, I, I, I sent him this sort of, you know, tantalizing. Shall we meet for drinks? And we went out for what we refer to now as a conspiracy. And I think we sat there and we, we drank for about two hours talking about monsters, but also music and, and art and all sorts of things. And by the time he was sufficiently, you know, hammered, I was able to, you know, throw this concept at him. And he was he was completely receptive right off the bat. And in fact, he was so into the idea that there were all sorts of, um, you know, days that we were filming in which his character or in which he himself was not appearing on camera, but he was, he was tagging along. He was right behind the camera because he was just so into what we were doing. That's awesome. Yeah. He came to all the auditions and, you know, just wanted to see the creative process. And now the guy who, you know, it, it, at that point was an author and was, um, you know, appearing on TV or whatnot as a talking head discussing these topics. Now the dudes after Butterfly Kisses, he's a he's a ham and he's doing community theater nonstop. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you changed him. I did. Okay. I did. I, I have I've had a transformative effect on his life, even as he had on mine. Or you created a monster. I created a new breed of monster. Oh my god! <laughs> and you're wondering where they're at, and you're making them, dude. Exactly. Well, I mean, that's the whole process here. You know, it's 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 like I said, a little bit of truth and a lot of bullshit. <laughs> Another cameo you had was Ed Sanchez from. Uh, well, I guess most famously uh, for co-directing and writing uh, the Blair Witch Project. Um, how did how did you pitch it to him to to come on uh, and be on in the film when? Uh, I, I, I met Ed, we did a panel together in Maryland um, on filmmaking and he was sort of asked to be on the panel as the guy who was, you know, an established Maryland superstar. And I was asked to be the guy that was kind of, you know, up and coming. And he was, he was totally awesome. Um, he was totally genuine. He, he, Everybody was there to see him, but you know, you'd never know it because he was just incredibly laid back and humble. And we stayed in touch. And so when I wrote Butterfly Kisses, originally the scene in which he appears in the film now, um, 
Ed, Ed was not in the script and I'm showing the screenplay to my producers and they're all going, well, why is Ed Sanchez not in this movie? I mean, you're, you're trying to factor in Matt Lake and, you know, David Sterrett and Steve Yeager and all these other sort of names mm -hmm. uh, from our, our local community. Why is Ed Sanchez not here? And, and my response was, well, I mean, come on. I mean, he, he, he co-directed the Blair Witch Project at this point, you know, 15, 16 years ago. And he's done so much since he's directed exists and altered and directs supernatural and from dusk till dawn. He doesn't, he doesn't want to talk about this and live in the shadow of this for the rest of his life. He's just going to roll his eyes at me. And the producers just, you know, kind of gave me these blank expressions and said, what's it going to hurt to call him? And I went, okay, fine, fine. We'll call him. And we called him and it was, you know, two or three days later, we're all, you know, sitting down at our local film office and I pitched the concept and it was like, you know, a two hour pitch because we just kept going off on tangents and <laughs> uh, but they were good tangents. And he was very, very receptive to the concept. And so he not only agreed to be in the film and do this cameo as himself, but when Butterfly Kisses was finally shot and when it was finally cut together in its original state, what is now a 90 minute commercial release was in its first assembly, three hours long. Holy cow. It was, it was a monster. I was thinking, you know, do I make this a mini series? You know, what, how do I make this happen? And so I kept taking him cuts of the film and uh, you know, his response was always 90 minutes. That's going to get you a commercial release. That's going to get you film festivals, 90 minutes, 90 minutes, 90 minutes. And so he kept watching cut after cut and giving me, uh, you know, creative guidance as I'm trying to shave it down, you know, minute by minute and essentially cut half the film out. And it was it was awesome of him. And what better person than the guy who popularized this, you know, this subgenre of horror right. to be sort of guiding your meta deconstruction of it. So in the end of the at the end of the, of the day, the, this film has, a, I guess I would say, like three main characters. Um, you have the 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 three main characters. You have Gavin, who finds the film, which is the the found footage part of this of this movie. We have the students that originally made the the film, and then we have you as um, the one that who's doing the doing the documentary, recording Gavin go through all this stuff. Was it difficult to go to go step in and and play that or? because of all the writing you did was it was it pretty easy to step into that role and, and know what you're trying to trying to do yes and no and yes it was easy in the sense that i did i did many 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 years of theater uh growing up and i never did theater specifically because i had any aspirations of becoming an actor or you know any desire to act but rather, I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker and that the only way I was ever going to really, truly be able to learn to guide an actor uh, toward a specific emotional place was if I knew what it required of me to get there. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I'd done plenty of acting. It wasn't a problem for me in that respect. It was a problem for me in the sense that... Um, when I'm directing, I need to be directing. And I feel that there are very few directors who are able 
to, you know, simultaneously act and be able to, you know, guide a crew as well as their fellow actors. Given that this film has this, you know, sort of pseudo documentary structure to it, and it's a little bit loose, uh, that gave us, a, you know, a certain latitude. But at the same time, you know, I, I, I was like, look, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. I want to direct. I, I don't want to be in my own film. Yet while I it, I could not find any other way for this story to unspool. It, it just, it, I was like, if this is going to be a telescoping sort of narrative that we keep coming out of, um, mm -hmm. I have to be in this. It's the only way it can end <laughs> unless I were to drop a different person in there playing the documentary filmmaker. But then I've just chucked the entire meta concept out the window. So, you know, I bit the bullet and made my face for radio appear on camera. Well, I was telling, uh, Greg, before you came on, is that your portion is actually really strong. Uh, yeah. As far as your acting acting chops, uh, it's it's uh, it's believable. It actually, um, I I feel it's one of the one of the stronger um, characters uh, in in the in the film. I really believed that you were you were this uh, this. I, I don't know if you were. I guess you were this producer director of of this documentary, who, at the end of the day, has to decide what to do after it all kind of goes south. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, I, I was very concerned about, you know, how it would play. I, I didn't know if that was considered a bridge too far to bring myself into my own film or if people were just going to be rolling their eyes or if I was going to be rolling my eyes watching it <laughs> and thinking, oh, man, I suck, you know, whatever. And the the reality is or the or the faux reality of it is, is that because this film I mean, it, it was largely method in a lot of respects. A lot of the actors wanted to stay in character the entire time, and I was guiding them as such. We were filming sequentially. Um, you know, actors weren't getting their pages or, or weren't getting the entire script. They were getting their pages right before we shot. So they never knew the journey they were taking. And so then when we started bringing real people into it, and that included myself, that included my crew who were all playing themselves as well. Yeah. We, we were sort of marinating in this false reality and it was very easy to just fall into it and inhabit the moment. And so when you've got a scene, for example, like where the crew shows up at the motel looking for Gavin mm -hmm. and it's, it was in reality, a, a seedy, nasty, disgusting motel. And <laughs> there were what you could not see right outside of the frame was we had we had prostitutes who were watching a shoot and wondering what the hell was going on. And <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. There's there's the moment where, you know, I say to the camera guy, I'm like, you know, it's the motel manager guy still watching us. He, because he really was coming out and watching. <laughs> And it was it the, those sort of non sequiturs or those sort of moments of of reality. They they fed what we were doing, and I was able to go. I don't need to act. I'm really I'm really uncomfortable right now because we're trying to get in and out of here before we draw too much attention to ourselves and somebody tries to sh you know shut us down. So it, it that that helped with everything for everybody. I think, and there are a lot of non actors in this film, and those sorts of things aided in their performances yeah no that was one of the things where it's like every time somebody either will say broke broke character and felt like it was coming out 
of uh, they felt like they might have been coming out of the scene it actually added to the scene for me because it was like oh this is real this is you know it made me really believe it and buy into the buy into the actual story and buy into what you all were doing and, and making and that was like that was the the best part because you start you start it and it's so self-deprecating and it's like oh hey people are gonna know this isn't real and and you're already laying those those seeds down but then as soon as these the real quote-unquote people are are smiling at weird times and you're like oh but that's what people do. So it was like on beat all the time. Awesome. I'm glad you responded to that because that that was a lot in the edit. And, you know, I, I, I cut this film along with the DP, a guy named Kenny Johnson, and we worked really, really hard to get this 90 minute cut together. And one of the things that I always wanted to do from the beginning was if an actor or a real person mispronounced a word, um, if they stumbled over their lines, if there was poor grammar, if there was anything where they, you know, unconsciously or consciously looked over at the camera or something, mm -hmm. those were all the moments that I wanted to be in there. And those were the takes I would choose because they yeah. felt real rather than, you know, people delivering perfect dialogue or whatnot. So yeah, those, those, those elements I think helped, you know, sort of invisibly guide you toward at least suspending disbelief. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. So I want to talk about something. Um, um, I guess a, I guess a plot point, kind of, but not really going into detail. Uh, the whole part of Gavin finding the films, like we already talked about, him wanting to get it out and you know to to show people what what happened to these these two filmmakers, but not being believed. Uh, it, I, I just find it really interesting how he went from just wanting to do it for for to get the story out to like having to prove. Like no, this Israel, and it just like it overtook him to the point where he he, you know, it, uh, to me he, he went mad. Uh, yeah, because no one believed him. No one believed him. That was that was true. Everyone was kind of just saying like, oh, he's just doing it for money or whatever. Um, and you guys need to watch this because it it plays out beautifully. It, but I mean, um, it's it's just it's just something that that actually it felt like like Greg said it felt real. Um, totally. Because I can, I can see myself. I see myself when I, when I am into something, um, a, a project that I really enjoy, and and I'm trying to get people to to like it, and, and either they don't like it or they don't choose sh show any interest into it. I'm like, what is wrong with you? All? You all need to like this, or you all need to watch this. And and I know I felt I felt myself being Gavin at that at that point. The the entire film, I'd like to say, is. You know, it's really about filmmaking, which seems obvious because everybody's running around mm -hmm. with a camera. But it's 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 about the creative process and the toll this can have on our relationships, on our families, mm -hmm. on our on our bank accounts, and on our jobs. And so, you know, I was trying to look at it from sort of three perspectives. And you know, the the one level you've got the kids, and that's the film school experience and what that's like. Mm -hmm. And then the next level is you know Gavin's story, which is. I was going to be Spielberg and then I graduated, I got married, I've got a mortgage and I'm saddled with responsibility and look what I'm doing. I shoot weddings and I'm miserable. Yep. I'm <laughs> almost 40 more. and oh my God, here's my last chance. This is my last chance. And then on the, the final end of the spectrum, you've got me and you know, somebody who has, you know, made a film and is trying to build a name for himself. Um, but now he's got a, he's got a crew and he's got people who are reliant upon him, investors. He's got to deliver this product and mm -hmm. it's all falling apart. 
And so I was trying to look at the entire creative process across the board. And I think the one thing that all of those threads and beyond have in common is that particularly on projects like this, whether whether it's a film or if you're a musician recording an album or or whatever a long term sort of um, you know endeavor is, it it tends to be something the the, the concept, the vision, the sound, whatever it is, exists within the artist's mind and can often exist fully formed, and they they can see completely what what the end result is going to be how it's going to affect people why it's going to affect people its relative importance in terms of you know the, the the artistic landscape but also what it can do for their lives and the lives of people around them they mm-hmm. there's this big picture and unless you are able to mind meld with that artist it can be very very difficult for you to see that uh if you're on the outside you're getting bits and pieces well here's a script or you know here's a demo of a song or here's a a sketch of a of a comic book i'm going to draw or whatever that might be and it is very difficult for people around the artist to be able to understand the intense level of passion uh, that is required to sustain them through the development and execution of that product. So it can be an isolating thing. It can, mm-hmm. and, and particularly if you are, say, friends with or married to or the child of people who don't have that ability to preconceive, don't have that ability to see your vision or extrapolate based on your ideas, um, they, they can they can just be like, okay, whatever. I don't know why you're so into this, but all right. And that can, that can really hurt the artist. The artist needs to be nurtured, needs to be supported, Mm -hmm. needs to be cared about. And uh, I guess what I'm trying to get to is that, that, that can be a lonely process. Ask anybody who's ever written a novel. It it can Mm -hmm. be a very lonely (laughs) process. And I wanted to touch on that and just the fact that, you know, it becomes something where he thinks he's got, Gavin thinks he's got the Blair Witch Project for real and this is going to make him millions. Um, Never mind the fact that the film definitely teases you with the fact that maybe he's not as reliable a narrator as we think. Mm -hmm. But, you know, nobody around him sees what he can see and that's driving, driving him nuts. It's making him, it's making him crazy. Uh, uh, go ahead, go ahead, Greg. I was gonna say, as as a as a person that uh, did film in college myself, in that time frame that Gavin probably went to school, and at the time frame in which the original, uh, when when Sophia and and uh, uh, why well, can't I ever think of his name? Feldman. Help me, Eric. Feldman. <laughs> yes, Feldman. <laughs> when uh, when they're in school and they're using the DV cam, and I'm like. Oh yeah, that's totally that. That's totally in the in the time frame reference. And then somebody makes the comment later, like, "Why do you have this camera?" And it's like, "Duh, Avi! Like, I went to film school in this time frame. Like, why wouldn't I have this DV camera that I spent thousands of dollars on and keep forever?" <laughs> do you do you have a Panasonic DVX? Uh, no, I I was a I was a uh, um I was I was. Well, I don't have a pen. I'm looking at what I have. I have an old PC-10. I have, I have a couple different Canons. <laughs> so, do you have the XL too? Because I mean, that yeah. was like that was yeah. the you know the Porsche, had. the Porsche of the moment. Had and then went into filming weddings at one point. <laughs> oh, so. what happened? What happened? Did it fall in a champagne flute or something? A giant uh, champagne car- flute. <laughs> car accident. 
So. Oh God, that sucks. Yeah, on the way back from a gig. All right, so so the the, the wedding videography film school thing. I guess th this all spoke to you. This all you know. I guess it had a certain resonance for you that you know the average person it might not. Oh, dude, hit me in the feels. I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> oh oh, it hurts so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a it's a thing, and you know, I mean, I I went to I went to school during that time period as well, and. You know, in, in in fact, the probably one of the hardest props to get for this entire film was the DVX. That was like one of the hardest damn things to secure, um, to be able to have on camera. Mm -hmm. But you know, I, I I went to school and I was one of those people that after I graduated, I said, okay, you know, I, I'm not going to move to New York. I'm not going to move to LA. I am going to, you know, try to be a big fish in a small pond. And then once I conquer a pond, you know, try to swim into the next one. So I'm going to be an independent filmmaker. And so I went and did that. And I made my first film and I started doing a bunch of other work. And the interesting thing is, you know, whenever I would, you know, be out and about and would run into other graduates, and there were there were tons of people that I had school with that I worked on projects with that you know I had rivalries with or whatever who have uh -huh. since gone on to do you know really really big things you know whether that's in the independent world or in mainstream cinema there are mm -hmm. people who are doing really really you know great professional work and sustaining themselves and making good on their promise then there would be the person I would run into who would be the cashier at, at Petco when I'm buying dog food and you know I, I i would just be like oh hey what's what's up what well you know we all have day jobs you know what 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 is it that yeah. you're 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 working on right now and they just be like eh, i'm just i'm not and it, it never it never made sense to me on one level why you wouldn't or why you would spend four years in school and then not graduate and say, okay, I have to hustle. I have to be an entrepreneur for myself. Got but it. then on the other, the other hand, it was just like, this is, wow, that's, that's, that's kind of depressing. Cause I, I, I want to see, I wanted to see what you did. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, that's, that's the thing with art. You know, it's once you're sort of outside of the classroom, you're, you're forced to figure out a game plan for yourself. Yeah. And it felt like you, you, you definitely like, like Saul said, you, you showed that in all those different stages of the, the school, the school project to the, to the, I found this thing to the, we got to do this. <laughs> well, not only that, the each, each um, section, you know, they have their, I guess, like their moral um, dilemma, whether they should try to do something or continue doing the film, even if it's yeah. the detriment of, of, of the film itself or to others. And yeah. each one ha takes a different route of as far as what they're doing. Like, and you said, like you, Gavin doesn't doesn't always seem like the, the most re most reliable uh, narrator because of because of that as well. It's mm -hmm. it's funny you mentioned the moral dilemma. I've never told anyone this story before ever. So so yay guys. Um, I'm, gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna bore you with a nugget from my past. Uh, when, I, when I was a senior uh, in college, the my you know, senior thesis, my big project that I was wrapping up with that was, you know, the the equivalent to the Butterfly Kisses documentary these kids are making was I was doing a documentary and it was called Film One. And the, the premise of Film One was that I was on my way out of the college experience and sort of looking backward and was going to go to um, 
the 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 starter class film one where 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 brand new still students are you know for the first time after you know i know everything about filmmaking because i watched all 27 hours of the lord of the rings extended edition documentaries um it's <laughs> it's the first time where they you know are putting their hands on you know bolex 16 millimeter cameras Ooh. and they're having to work with 100 you know, foot rolls. And once you run out, you run out. You can't play back what you shot. You can't see what you shot. If you don't have a lighting kit reserved, uh, your film is going to be, you know, underexposed. All of the things that happen when you actually shoot on film. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to make a documentary, ironically on digital, and uh, it <laughs> was going to be following a film one group as they conceived of their idea were forced to work together and shoot and everything that could go wrong would go wrong. And ultimately they would have to, alongside their peers, screen their film at the student film festival uh, on, you know, on a big screen in front of, you know, lots and lots of people. So that was, you know, I guess it was kind of, you know, like, like project green light in, in microcosm or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, the, the point of this story is that, we, we started filming and we're there with our group and, you know, just documenting everything that's happening. And I'm being very, very specific about, you know, saying to, you know, the people on my side of the camera, I'm going, okay, you know, we can't interfere with anything they're doing. We should be trying not to talk unless we're trying to grab sidebar interviews with them, yada, yada. These are the rules of documentary filmmaking. And about halfway through their shoot day, one of their actors and not just one of their actors, but like, you know, a key character, a, a villain did not show up and oh. they did not know what to do. And I'm sitting here and I'm going drama, drama, drama. <laughs> and the director of the project, as we're filming, looks over and goes, hey, Eric, can you can you step in? Like, we don't need your face. We just need a body to enter into the shot. And I went, oh yeah, sure, no problem. Not even thinking. And just completely, you know, blew my entire premise of we don't interfere in any way. So uh. I, I said, okay, yeah, no problem. And the next thing I know, they're calling on me for more shots and more shots and more shots. And <laughs> I became a character in my own documentary where I'm now suddenly, instead of being this disembodied voice behind the frame, I'm now appearing on camera doing my own interviews and going, you know, I never should have said yes because I've crossed an ethical line and now I'm involved with this thing. And it, it, it just, you know, on the one hand I screwed up, but on the other hand, it made the story more dynamic and that that became, you know, one of the things that I had to put into Butterfly Kisses, just having been down that road and how, you know, the, the, the filmmaker can influence the very story that they're trying to tell. Right, right. Now, we haven't talked a lot about the supernatural portion of this of this uh, film, but part of that is because we are going to have a separate um, episode dedicated. Um, well, depending on how how. Uh, it all falls falls in. It's it's on Kickstarter right now called In the Blink of an Eye. And this is supposed to uh go ahead and open up the lore a little bit more of the actual of the actual entity, right? Correct. Correct. It was uh it was pitched to me by um a mystery author named K. Patrick Glover. And um the the premise in the film is I had mentioned Ilchester Tunnel earlier, and the the, the concept is that if you go to this train tunnel uh, and you stand on the far side of the trestle that spans the river and you stare into the train tunnel 
at exactly the stroke of midnight until 1 a.m. without blinking your eyes once, um, this this manifestation appears at the end of the tunnel and he is known uh, based on whatever generation you grew up and heard the name on the playground. He is either Peeping Tom, the Blink Man, um, Old Blinky, uh, all sorts of names. And the, the gag is that once you've done this superhuman act of being able to summon him by not blinking for a straight hour, uh, you've now seen him and cannot unsee him. And every time you blink your eyes, he gets one step closer and one step closer and one step closer until he's nose to nose with you. And as you're doing everything you can not to blink that last time, holding your eyelids open or whatever, he reaches out with these very long, creepy, you know, tendril eyelashes and he, you know, brushes your cheeks and tickles you and forces you to blink. Hence, butterfly kisses. And then he scares you to death. So... You know, that that was the premise within the film. And so I was I was doing a signing at a comic book store here in Baltimore, um, um, Collector's Corner. We were doing we were doing a signing and I met K. Patrick Lover, who had written a graphic novel and he was, you know, at the table next to me. And we just started chatting and, and we hit it off and he watched the film and he struck upon the idea of how cool would it be to do an anthology where we get a bunch of different writers um, together from, from all over the world. And everybody does a different story about, you know, the, the entity of Ilchester Tunnel. And they should all be during a different time period, a different decade or what have you. And I was like, yeah, that sounds awesome. And so that's what everybody's doing right now. And for me, that's incredibly cool because it's like, you know, I, I created this idea that now other people are running with. And it's it's fun for me, you know, sort of like in a fanboy way to read what other people are, are <laughs> doing with my creation. The same way I tried to take, you know, Ed Sanchez's creation and play with it. Nice. Very so cool. we'll be talking to him uh, or... By the time you hear this, we'll have already talked to him, and uh, we'll ex expand a little bit more and see what what to expect in in that in that anthology. Um, Eric, did we forget anything? Did anything that you want to go ahead and make sure we we include in this in this ep in this uh, interview? No, nothing I could think of. You guys have been extremely thorough, and you've been incredibly patient with with letting me run off the mouth. I I, I thank you for it. It's been very very fun. It has been fun. You guys need to stay in touch and, and you know, um, I'd, I'd love to come back if the opportunity ever presented itself. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, any, anything else that you come up with, just, just let us know and we'll be more than happy to, to take a look at it or just to talk to you about it and, and um, continue continue seeing what you what you come up with. And uh, what, where can people find it? We, we, and we know um, Prime is, is uh, something available for to watch this. If you have Prime, you can watch it at no cost. You can also rent it there. Um, where else can people locate this? Uh, both Butterfly Kisses and Roulette are available on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh, you can get them, you know, Target, Best Buy, uh, you know, the box stores or whatever, but also Roku and Prime, as you said, and uh, Hulu and all those various uh, locations. Um, in the meantime, you know, look me up on Facebook, Eric Christopher Myers. Um, I'm E-K-M-Y-E-R-S on Twitter. And I also, as I said, write for Ain't It Cool News, where I'm now doing a 31-day column on the Star Wars franchise for the month of May. So, um, yeah, hit me up. Let me know what you think of the movie. And um, 
Remember that for all independent artists, uh, the best way to help our voices be heard is to give IMDb and Amazon reviews. And uh, the same can be said for podcasters where you should go on iTunes or wherever else and you should punch that five star button for this show right after you listen to it. Awesome. Awesome. Well, yes. it was a pleasure speaking with you, Eric. And like I said, uh, as, as soon as, uh, as soon as you have anything else in the line, just let us know. We'll be more than happy to have you back. You guys are so awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you very thank much you. For, for joining us and everyone. Thank you for joining us here on, on Nerds in the Crypt. Are you a fan of things that go bump in the night? Chills up your spine, paralyzed by fright. Thrilled by horror at the center of a chat. Then welcome to the Nerds from the Crypt podcast.